Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 5. We're going to read the first uh, five verses and then verse 10, which is kind of a coda on the the whole passage. And uh, I invite you to follow along with the words that are there on the screen or um, perhaps follow along with your own Bible if you brought that with you this morning. Uh, We are hearing about kind of the very beginning of King David's reign over the nation of Israel. We begin with uh, verse one of chapter five. It says, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and they said, we are your own flesh and blood. In In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. And when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron. And before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. And David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. And in Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all of Israel and Judah 33 years. And he became greater and greater because the Lord God Almighty was with him. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. There's a small little word at the very beginning of today's reading that is doing a lot of work for us today. It's the word, then. There's a lot that's packed into the word then. When it says, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. It's such a loaded word that a few translations leave that out altogether. It's there in the original, but a couple translations leave out the word then as if to say, we are not here to talk about the past. I'm just curious, the reason we're talking about this today is that today's reading is the one that comes to us from uh, what's called the Revised Common Lectionary. It's this calendar of readings that are used by churches all over the globe. So this morning, when we hear this passage, we know that we are hearing the same words from Scripture that are being read by people all over the globe, uh, across all manner of different nations and countries, wherever it is that the, uh, the church is gathering. And we don't always preach from the lectionary here at Dolphin Way. We kind of uh, use it as our default in between different seasons and series. When uh, we don't have kind of the, the larger theme that we're trying to be a part of, we go back to the lectionary. I love it when we're preaching from the lectionary because uh, it's a great way of living under the authority of the scriptures. Uh, I love that uh, this is, anytime I am tempted to simply pick and choose my favorite parts of the Bible, you know, the ones I know the best, the ones I can just preach from heart, here comes the lectionary to kind of draw me up, to force me to slow down a little bit, to to wrestle with a passage that maybe I I wouldn't naturally preach or that I, I wouldn't spend as much time on. It's a wonderful reminder to me that the scriptures have a lot more in them than just the greatest hits that you or I might be familiar with. But there's... Uh, Also, this awareness I have whenever I am preaching from the lesser known parts of the Bible or the things we don't preach on as often. And uh, and it's this overwhelming awareness I have that I am never going to preach the whole Bible. Uh, That I I could preach the rest of my life like I hope I do. And I am never going to get to every verse in the Bible. I I counted it out a few years back. There are 30, I mean, I didn't count by hand. I Googled this. Uh, There are 31,102 verses in the Bible. And I did do this math by, by hand. I, I think I learned how to do it in third grade. It was, uh, I just divided it up by the amount of years I can expect. And I figured 
I realized that if I preached on 10 different verses every week, and I never took a Sunday off from preaching, then I would need 60 years to preach the whole Bible. Now, I might just barely be able to make that, but I've already lost a little bit of time. I've taken a few Sundays off. And I've preached a few passages of the Bible more than once. I don't have time for that kind of redundancy if I'm going to preach the whole Bible to you. I remember once there was this church on uh, Vaughn Road in Montgomery where I grew up. It was just down the road from where Jennifer grew up and from where Pastor Woods used to be on staff. There was this church and uh, out front, it was kind of the, the coming attraction sign, you know, that a lot of churches have. And they said, uh, we are preaching through Romans verse by verse. And I think that the preacher must have done that because he didn't like changing the sign that often. Uh, After three years of driving past that church, the only thing that ever changed was the, the, the reference after the word Romans. It'd be like, we're preaching through Romans, verse by verse, Romans 8, 1 through 10. And the next week would be like 11 through 20, you know. It takes a long time to cover it all. And I had to reconcile myself a long time ago that I am never going to be able to cover all of the scriptures. And the lectionary does the same thing. It doesn't cover all the scriptures. For example, today, if we had been reading the Old Testament lectionary last week, we would have been in 2 Samuel chapter one. And you notice today we skipped to chapter five. We skipped some in between. The word then for us today is containing all of chapter three and all of chapter two and all of chapter four. See, last week's reading in the lectionary, if we had done the Old Testament, was about the death of Saul, the king who came before David. And then we pick it up today with David's coronation. Four chapters later, David is becoming king. And if we only read what the lectionary gave to us, it would go something like, Saul died, then David became king. And conveniently enough, there's nothing in between. Which is kind of like how we tell the story of the 4th of July, isn't it? And we kind of go from the Declaration of Independence to the Constitution, don't we? We might tell about a couple of battles, Yorktown, Lin-Manuel Miranda made famous, but we skip over a lot of those battles, and we definitely skip over the seven and a half years in which there was no Constitution, there was no president, there was no war, and America was just in this kind of limbo. This, This evening... When you go to watch Capitol 4th or uh, you go downtown to see the fireworks, if the rain holds off, nobody's going to be talking about the Articles of Confederation, right? This is how sometimes we tell the story of our own country. That's more or less the, the attitude that the elders had when they came to David in today's scripture. They didn't want to talk about the messy parts of the story, the parts that kind of confuse the, the nice linear narrative. The elders come to David and they say to him, you are our own flesh and bone, and we are one family. And we know that God has chosen you to be the shepherd of Israel, and you were meant to become our ruler. And then for good measure, they add in this extra compliment. They say, even when Saul was the king, we know you were leading Israel into battle. And saying, we know you were doing the real work. And all that's really nice of them to say. You know, that's very complimentary. I'm sure David felt really good about that, unless he remembered anything that had happened in the previous three chapters. Because in between the moment when Saul died and the moment when these elders came to crown David king, there were some messy parts of the story. It had been about seven and a half years. And for every one of those years, these same elders who are now coming to David have been waging a bloody war with all of their tribes against David. They have not recognized him as king. Instead, they wanted Saul's son, a guy named Ishbosheth. You've not heard of him, that's okay. 
They wanted Ishbosheth to be their king. And for seven and a half years, they waged war against David. And it was chaotic. And there were all kinds of betrayals and assassinations. And it's really quite fascinating. You should read it. But it is not neat. It is not tidy. And it was not their first choice to bow down to King David and anoint him king. They would have chosen someone else. And it is only after David has beaten all their armies and after all of their leaders have kind of been betrayed and turned in on one another that they finally come to David because they really have no other choice. And they say, hey, aren't we all one family? And I wonder if you've ever been in a position like those elders. I wonder if you've ever had to talk yourself And in not just tolerating, but actually loving someone or something that you would not have chosen if you had any other options. I wonder if you've ever found yourself hoping that someone would forgive and respect you after you had disrespected them. And I wonder if you've ever found yourself desperately hoping that someone did not want to talk about the past because that was your only hope. I wonder if you've ever been in David's position where someone has come to you and you have had to love someone or something even though you know they only came to you as a last resort. And I wonder what you would done if you were David. I wonder what kind of demands you would make when they came on their knees saying, hey, aren't we one family after all? Let's not talk about the past. I'm not sure many of us would be willing to do what David does in verse three of what we read today, where we're told that David made a covenant with the tribes. And it's really important that we understand that a covenant is different than a command or a consequence. A covenant is a two-way relationship. And we see that because we see that David says to them, I want you to anoint me. David grants to these people whom he has thoroughly conquered. He grants them the authority. He says, I need your authority to truly be king, and he kneels and invites them to anoint his head. He's entering into this two-way relationship with them. And if we had worked our way through chapters two and chapters three and chapters four, this is the outcome that we would have been rooting for the whole time. In the worst of the chaos, when we said, how can this ever be made right? How is this ever gonna work out? We would have been praying for a moment like this where Israel is united again. And David is not just king, but he is a humble king. He is a good king. He is one who's willing to have this two-way relationship, even with the people that he has conquered. And we would surely be letting out a sigh of relief when we get to the last verse of what we read today. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. That's the ending we would have been rooting for. It's a nice ending. The Lord is with Israel. The Lord is with Israel's king. All is well. As long as we don't talk about one tiny little thing. Israel's never supposed to have a king to begin with. You might remember that David is Israel's only their second ever king. And there came a time at the beginning of the book of Samuel, uh, the first Samuel, where David's mentor, a prophet by the name of Samuel, was leading Israel by saying, here is what the Lord God wants. And the people of Israel came to Samuel and they said, you're about to die and we would like a king like everybody else has. We want somebody who won't just 
tell us God's desire, but someone who will lead us into battle. We want someone who can kind of do the work for us, who can lead us, who can be our representative. And Samuel comes to God and says, God, what do you want me to do with this? They have rejected you as their king. The people of Israel are rejecting you and they want a human king of their own. And God comes to Samuel and he tells Samuel, tell the people of Israel this. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and draft them to serve in his armies and his fields and to make his weapons. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive orchards and he will give them to his courtiers. And for the record, David did all of that and a lot worse. David did not remain as humble as he was here at the beginning, and he was going to have to humble himself again and again, even more deeply in the years that followed. Over the course of his 40 years reign, David is going to forcibly take the wife of one of his most trusted generals, and then he will conspire to make sure that that general is murdered in battle. David will end up waging war against his own son, Absalom. And then at the end of his reign, God will punish David specifically because David conducts this kind of ruthless census and draft of the people of Israel to draft their sons of the nation to fight his battles, just as Samuel had promised. And for the record, David's successors as king will all be so bad (laughs) that the nation of Israel will look back at this and think of it as their golden age. And so I'm not trying to tell you that the blessing we heard about at the end today is not real. Or says David became greater and greater because the Lord was with him. And we see Israel unified and we see the blessings poured out. I'm not telling you that it's not real. What I, I'm not trying to take anything away from this blessing. And the blessing that it is when we see God's people united and we see the end of the violence and the chaos. And when we see the true and honest goodness of David's humility, all of those things are real and they were very good. And not a one of them was a part of what God originally wanted. Or at least God didn't want it to come about by this means. What God wanted was for Israel to be a nation with no king but God. And what God wanted was for Israel to be a nation that blessed all nations and blessed all the world and led the world back into the relationship. God wanted the other nations to become like Israel, not Israel to become like the other nations. God intended the world to be one in which each person belongs in God's royal court where every person walks with God and no king would be necessary because as the prophet Jeremiah would say, God's law was written on their hearts. That's what God wanted. And what astonishes me about the scriptures is that when they talk about David, they talk about all of this. They talk about the glory that God wanted And they talk about how David fell short. And they talk about how God took the failings of David and of Israel and how God did not choose to abandon them or say, therefore, live with the consequences of what you did. But God kept working and kept turning and trying to turn even their bad decisions to God's ultimate purpose. And at every turn, God found a way to bring blessings out of the things that God never wanted to begin with. And isn't it marvelous to serve a God who has the superpower of blessing our best efforts as flawed and fallen as they may be? 
I'm afraid sometimes we miss how astonishing this is and how good and gracious God really is. So I want to revisit this logic as simply as I can. God never wanted Israel to have a king, but Israel demanded a king because they weren't up to the relationship that God did want. And so God gave them a king and did not give them a king grudgingly. God chose to be patient with their weakness. Said, this is what you need for now. He didn't give it grudgingly. He said, fine, here's your king. You're on your own. He didn't say, you're on your own. You'll be back. Good riddance to you. Good luck. But now instead, God blesses the king that he never wanted. And God is with the king. And he works for the good of the nation through the king. And even when Israel directly opposes God, God refuses to become their opponent. You hear that? Even when Israel directly opposes God, God will not treat them as the enemy, as, as if they are God's opponent. And that's every one of us, isn't it? Every one of us has opposed God, but God has never treated us as the opponent. Some of us have opposed God rebelliously. Sometimes it was because we knew what we wanted and it seemed better than what God wanted. And sometimes we have opposed God, not out of rebellion, but just out of desperation. It seemed like what God wanted was just too much for us to bear. It's too hard. I can't do this. There must be a better way. And through all of that, God has sympathized with our weaknesses and God has given us the free will and allowed us sometimes to get what we want. And God has even worked with us to turn our willfulness into God's own glory. And no matter how often we have opposed God, God has never treated us as the opponent. And I think the world could use a little bit more of that. And on this July 4th, I think particularly of our nation, I think we could use a little bit more of that spirit. Here in this nation that enshrined in its law something called the freedom of speech, which means that we, if we're gonna get along in this world, have to pretty much depend upon a miracle. I mean, do you realize what a miracle we expect every time we tell people, we want you to air all your differences. We want you to disagree. We want you to push and challenge each other. And then we want you to work together. That's a miracle if it ever happens. We want you to oppose one another and then believe that we're working together for the good of each other and the community and the nation. We live in a nation that expects our leaders to push and challenge and oppose one another, but never treat each other as the opponent and to do the same with our neighbors to at the end of the day, then get along and work together when decision time comes. And that is a messy process and it is conflicted and it is full of compromise. And there are times when I think that Winston Churchill is entirely right when he says that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others that we've tried. <laughs> and I am quite certain that our nation, like every nation, is run a little bit differently than the kingdom of heaven. I am sure that we often do not do what God wants. And I'm grateful that God has not just allowed us but called us and commanded us and that God wants us to love imperfect and unfinished things. 
And I pray that we would be a people who never give up working for the good of our neighbors, for our communities and our land, even though we as the church are never gonna fully get our way. It's never gonna go just like we wanted, right? There will never be a political party or a leader who perfectly represents what God wants. Not even the church has managed to do that in 2,000 years. Why should we expect it of any political entity? But we serve a God who blessed us even when we opposed him. A God who died for us while we were yet sinners. And so surely we're not gonna wait until we get everything we want to pray for the good and to work for the good and to seek the good of the land in which we live and those neighbors who live alongside us within it. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that the way of the world is that most people would rather root for and work for the downfall of their opponent than to hope and pray for the good of all. The way of the world is that we want to make sure we don't give too much credit to our opponents when they contribute something for which we are genuinely grateful. And the way of the world is that we want to talk about the good things when we do them and the bad things when our opponents do them. (laughs) And the way of the world is that we defend our tribe at all costs rather than practice the humility of confessing that none of us has gotten it all right. Way of the world is to tell the parts of the story that we want to tell, rather than admitting in humility that every single one of us has made mistakes and not just tiny, insignificant, oopsie-daisy kind of mistakes, but we have all made profound, life-altering, justice-breaking kinds of mistakes. The way of the world is to assume there are just some things we shouldn't talk about. We shouldn't praise or we, other people too much and we shouldn't criticize others. We shouldn't talk about the ways we failed. We shouldn't talk about the ways our opponents have blessed us. And a world like that needs a church that is quick to listen and slow to anger, just as the book of James says. A world like that needs a church that can talk about everything. A church that knows how to praise and give thanks and also knows how to confess. A church that will lead the way in showing what it means to be humble enough to surrender to a covenant, to a two-way relationship with our neighbors, in which we aren't just here to see if we are stronger, but we also sympathize with each other's weaknesses and each other's fears and each other's concerns. And then, then, if we in God's church can find it in ourselves to bless our neighbors, if we can covenant to keep working even for our nation's good, even when we don't always get our way, the most astonishing thing can happen. God gets God's way anyway. God is able to take those moments when we demanded what we wanted and wring from them what God wanted. Because now we know Israel's past, but most of us here probably have heard the story of Israel's future too. Israel got the king they wanted and David would then become the ancestor of the king God wanted to give us all along. God intended to give us himself as the king and in Jesus Christ he did. And then when we wanted to kill that king, God turned that again. He walked out of the grave. God turned the worst thing we ever wanted into the best news that we would ever hear. Because God's will is like a river. 
And here I'm stealing uh, this analogy from the great Methodist preacher, Leslie Weatherhead, who in 1942 was trying to explain to his parishioners in London, England, how any of this that they saw around them could fit into the will of God. What did the blitz and the bombs have to do with the will of God? What did a world in chaos and war have to do with the will of God? People were asking, is this really the will of God? And in a famous series of sermons, Leslie Weatherhead responded by saying that God's will is like a river. And our will sometimes surrenders to the current and goes with it and sometimes opposes it. We chuck stones in that river. We throw boulders. We build dams across it. And that diverts the course of the river for a time. We may even change the course of the river, but we can't change its end. There is nothing we can do to stop the flow of God's grace. And whether it goes through us or around us or over us, the water will reach the ocean and God's will will be done. And nothing that we do can keep the water from the ocean forever and nothing that we do can keep God from God's purpose. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the name above all names. And when God chooses to bless our imperfect will, not a single drop of his goodwill will be lost. And so if we truly believe that, then we are free. We are free to love imperfect gifts, to love them deeply, and to love them well, to love them honestly and faithfully, to shape them and be shaped by them. We can love our neighbor. And we don't have to say that everything they're doing is exactly what God wanted. Because nothing that we've done was exactly what God wanted either. We can love our nation. We can pray for its leaders. Pray for its prosperity, pray for its peace. We can love its amber waves and its sea to shining sea. We can love its pilgrim feet and its patriot dreams. And loving does not mean that we only tell one part of the story, that we talk as if everything in our nation has been or is or always will be exactly what God wanted. No, we, we can tell the whole story with no lack of love. Ours is not the only nation God loves, Our nation is not all that God would want it to be. And we are told that God's church crosses borders and that on the day of revelation, all the nations will bring their particular glory into the kingdom of heaven. But in the meantime, God in God's liberty has set us free to love and to build up whatever particular glory belongs to our nation that we will bring into heaven. To love and to bless and to mend its every flaw. So on this July 4th, we can give wholehearted thanks for the place that God has given us and called us to love and to bless. And we, the church, can talk about every blessing and we can confess every need and we can mean every word of it as we pray for our nation by saying, God shed his grace on thee. For we know we've had it and we know we need it. And there has never been a moment when we did not have God's grace that he's poured out on all. And there's never been a moment we did not need God's grace. And if we can bless this people and the people where we live, then perhaps they will be able to say, look, God is with us. And then God will get what God wanted all along. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.